0: Welcome back, everyone, to Remembering John Wayne, Part 2, here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Although I grew up in California, I spent most of my adult life in Virginia. Most of you have probably heard of Colonial Williamsburg. It's a very popular international tourist destination and does very well with its portrayal of colonial American history in early November of 1978. Perry Como did a Christmas special in Williamsburg and invited John Wayne and Diane Canova as guests. Although Perry Como was popular at the time, huge crowds poured in just to see John Wayne. It was a huge event and received coverage in all the local papers. John Wayne tended to draw crowds like that wherever he went. Those people in Williamsburg in November of 1978 had no clue that John Wayne had less than one year to live. He went where he was in demand and kept his failing condition quiet and out of view of the public because he felt that if his image faltered it would disappoint his fans and he was hurting in many ways. And many people don't know that on May twenty-sixth, 1979 Wayne was awarded a Congressional Gold Medal and dozens of American leaders and talents testified in front of Congress on his behalf. Some of their names Maureen O'Hara Elizabeth Taylor, Frank Sinatra, Catherine Hepburn, General and Mrs. Omar Bradley, Gregory Peck, Robert Stack, James Arness, and Kirk Douglas, to name a few. Robert Ulrich, President of the Directors Guild of America, made a particularly notable statement which fits well with our story here. He said, "'It is important for you to know that I'm a registered Democrat, and to my knowledge, share none of the political views espoused by the Duke. However, whether he is ill-disposed or healthy, John Wayne is far beyond the normal political sharpshooting in this community. Because of his courage, his dignity, his integrity, and because of his talents as an actor, his strength as a leader, his warmth as a human being throughout his illustrious career, he is entitled to a unique spot in our hearts and minds. In this industry... We often judge people, sometimes unfairly, by asking whether they have paid their dues. John Wayne has paid his dues over and over, and I am proud to consider him a friend, and I am very much in favor of my government, recognizing in some important fashion the contribution that Mr. Wayne has made. Wayne was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom on June 9, 1980, by President Jimmy Carter. He had attended Carter's inaugural ball, as a member of the loyal opposition, as he put it. In 1998, he was awarded the Naval Heritage Award by the U.S. Navy Memorial Foundation for his support of the Navy and military during his film career, especially in movies like In Harm's Way. In 1999, the American Film Institute named John Wayne 13th among the greatest male screen legends of classic Hollywood cinema. In the essay... John Wayne, a love song. Joan Didion recalls the first time she saw John Wayne in a movie. It was there, that summer of 1943, while the hot wind blew outside, that I first saw John Wayne. Saw the walk, heard the voice. Heard him tell a girl in the picture, called War of the Wildcats, that he would build her a house at the bend in the river where the cottonwoods grow. As it happened, I did not grow up to be the kind of woman who was the heroine in a western, and although the men I have known have had many virtues, and have taken me to live in many places I have come to love, they have never been John Wayne, and they have never taken me to that bend in the river where the cottonwoods grow. Deep in that part of my heart where the artificial rain forever falls, that is still the line I want to hear. When John Wayne rode through my childhood, and perhaps through yours, he determined forever the shapes of certain of our dreams. It does not seem possible that such a man could fall ill, could carry within him that most inexplicable and ungovernable of diseases. You can hear it in the last two quotes I just shared with you. Wayne embodied the icon of strong American masculinity in both his films and his life, and you heard some of the descriptions of him just now using the words courage dignity, integrity, and warmth. Later, we'll talk about his long battle with two kinds of cancer and how one of his sons manages the John Wayne Cancer Institute today. Today in Part 2, I'll share my top eight favorite John Wayne movies with you and give you a little background on them in case you want to try them. I already mentioned a couple of them in Part 1. And by the way, before we get rolling here, John Wayne and I have a few things in common. His favorite authors were Charles Dickens, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Agatha Christie. He enjoyed a good game of chess, and although I don't expect anyone to believe this, or much less care, we are distant relatives. I didn't know this until two years ago, when we were sponsored by Ancestry.com, and two of their genealogy experts built two family trees for me, one featuring my adoptive family and those who came before and one of my biological parents, and those who came before parents of whom I had no clue, except for my bio-mother's name, God rest her soul. Apparently my biological great-grandpa to somewhere near the tenth power was William Bassett, one of the thirty-five passengers who arrived on the ship Fortune soon after the Mayflower. There were two women on board that ship, and one was his wife, Elizabeth Bassett. Anyway, an Internet search of William Bassett, will reveal that among William Bassett's famous descendants can be found Winston Churchill and John Wayne. Not bad company. And although it's extremely remote, at least I can say I have a vested interest in this story. We ended Part 1 in 1952, and John Wayne's career was on a roll. In July of 1953, there was a temporary alimony hearing at which Chada, Wayne's second wife, "'accused him of twenty-two acts of physical cruelty, "'claiming that Wayne had clobbered her "'and asking for an order to restrain him. "'Wayne, on the other hand, "'swore that he never once struck Chata, "'but he held her back at arm's length "'whenever she charged at him in a drunken rage, "'which was at least thirty-one times, "'so he claims in his countersuit, "'and he was probably giving her the benefit of the doubt. "'Many witnesses had seen how Chata reacted in a drunken rage, "'accusing Wayne of love affairs.' she ended up with a settlement of $1,100 a month, and he headed for Mexico to film Hondo. Hondo is a good Western story, in which a U.S. cavalry scout finds a lonely woman trying to run a ranch in the desert with her young son Johnny. He finds out that her husband deserted her after an Apache attack, and he tries to convince her to abandon the ranch for her own safety, but she refuses. There was some real controversy behind the scenes with the actress Geraldine Page, who as one story relates, tried to get real western flavor by not bathing for a long while when filming began. That apparently caused some friction, but she played her role well, garnering the Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. That was her first film, and in it one of her lines was, I know I'm a homely woman. She must have said that well. She would later say of Wayne, Duke never yelled at me. If he got bad-tempered, He'd get sarcastic about New York and Stanislavski, meaning the Stanislavski method of acting, learning ways to draw those emotions from your inner self if you haven't actually experienced it. So we're safe to assume that Geraldine Page, never having lived alone on a desert ranch surrounded by bloodthirsty Apaches, had to draw those emotions from her mind. She must have done well with that. She might have pictured herself alone on a New York subway at 2 a.m. That would come close. To quote Mike Rowe, just saying. There were times when I was on the verge of saying I'd had enough and telling him what he could do with his cowboy picture when he'd suddenly calm down and say, Ah, Geraldine, you're not mad at the old Duke, are you? And I'd say, no. And when I got back to the hotel, I'd say to myself, I'm so stupid. I'm the same as all the others. I get taken in by that charm, that tremendous charm. In a funny way, I just loved him, she said. He was John Wayne, on screen and off. We'll return with part two of Remembering John Wayne, right after these sponsor messages.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: And now, back to our story. Next came the Howard Hughes film, The High and the Mighty, number three of my eight favorites. The story involves an airplane and route from Hawaii to California, which runs into trouble. Robert Stack plays the pilot who loses his calm when an engine catches fire. The crew and passengers, sensing that the end is near, began to recall and assess their past lives. That movie became the source for many airplane disaster movies to follow, finally ending in the spoof film Airplane, which draws many similarities from The High and the Mighty. Wayne plays the veteran first officer Dan Roman, who has his own demons to deal with. He was piloting a plane with his wife and child on board when it crashed, killing them both. To remember, he carries his daughter's little toy bear with him on every flight. His character is a lonely soul carrying a huge burden of guilt. When pilot Stack loses his cool, Wayne takes over, beginning with slapping Stack's character back into reality. Meanwhile, a jaded actress Mae Olst played very well by Claire Trevor and her fellow 15 passengers are going through their own kind of hell, as the plane goes through what looks a lot like its last minutes. Claire Trevor, who had won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Key Largo, got to know Wade's third, and new wife at that time, Pilar, very well during that filming, which was Wayne's first Cinemascope film. William H. Clothier filmed all the aerial scenes. He had been a stunt pilot, and later a World War I pilot with the Lafayette Escadrille. After The High and the Mighty, he was invited onto a number of Wayne's films, it was from this film that Wayne dissolved his partnership with Robert Fellows and began his own film company called Bat Jack, which was his son Michael's creation, taken from the name of the shipping company in the film The Wake of the Red Witch. In the beginning of the film The High and the Mighty, John Wayne approaches the plane in uniform carrying his valise and checking some details on the exterior. He is heard whistling the Oscar-nominated melody created for the movie by Dmitry Tyomkin. A few of you will recognize that name, Dmitry Chomkin. His is a fascinating story, and I'll give you a thumbnail here because Chomkin's themes appear in many John Wayne movies. Dmitry Chomkin was a Russian-born composer who came to New York City after the bloody Russian Revolution. After the stock market crash of 1929, he moved to Hollywood, where he fell in love with the theme of the American West and its legends, and became best known for his scores for Western films including Duel in the Sun, Red River, High Noon, The Big Sky, The Alamo, Gunfight at the O.K. Corral, and Last Train from Gun Hill. Not to mention all his scores for non-Western films, like It's a Wonderful Life, Dial M for Murder, The Old Man in the Sea, The Guns of Navarone, and Giant. He was the highest-paid composer in Hollywood for ten years between 1948 and 1958. You can point out a number of virtues that Wayne's character portrays in The High and the Mighty, but I think the best is that of self-reliance. There are moments in everyone's life where everything tends to fall apart around you. When tragedy threatens, people often freeze in terror. Uncertain as what to do. Airplane pilots are taught self-control. It's a rarity when a pilot falls apart. In this movie, John Wayne, saddled with all his guilt and haunted by the past, steps up in the face of what looks like certain death. He takes things into his own hands. He's driven to save the lives of the people on that plane, and he does it, despite havoc and fear showing all around him. That's what men and women who are capable of leadership under extreme duress do. We mentioned earlier that the film The Quiet Man is often said to be one of the favorites of John Wayne film fans today. The Searchers is also often quoted as another top favorite. The Searchers was filmed in the hot summer of 1955 in Monument Valley, Utah. It tells the story of Ethan Edwards, played by John Wayne, a man who returns home to West Texas after the Civil War only to witness his brother's family killed or abducted by Comanches. He vows to track down his surviving two nieces and bring them home. One of those nieces is played by a young Natalie Wood. He spends years tracking down the Indians who committed the crime, accompanied by his nephew Martin. Well, acted by Jeffrey Martin. Over the past 50 years, the John Ford directed film has come to be considered a masterpiece and one of the most influential films ever made. Wayne's character, after witnessing the mutilation of his family members, turns dark, and as his years long search continues, becomes darker still in his relentless search for the killers responsible. There were hints that Ethan had had an affair with his brother's wife, which made the search for his niece. "'even more tragic, as she was likely his own daughter. "'The actors and crew working on that film with the Duke "'were seeing a wholly different man now in this epic. "'In this character, Ethan, we see discipline carried to the extreme, "'grit and a sense of justice, being the desire to defend the weak, "'all manly qualities, to be sure, "'all carried out relentlessly over a period of years in a single man hut, "'which required toughness and courage.' Duke's young son, Patrick, had a role in the searchers and did very well. He also developed an eye for Natalie Wood, and she for him, according to film legend. His next big film was Rio Bravo, not one of my favorites, although the cast, starting with Angie Dickinson, was superb. Our long-in-the-tooth fans all have a good story to tell about Angie Dickinson, or at least some good memories. She was 26 years old then. She would later say of the Duke... "'Duke was a real man, and I mean a real man. "'He was like it on screen and off. "'I was still new to the movies, and Duke really helped me a lot. "'We had some long scenes together, much longer than Duke was used to. "'He just said whatever came to mind, and it always worked. "'He enjoyed working with producer Howard Hawks. "'Wayne would later say of Angie Dickinson, "'She had beauty, sex appeal, and brains.' and she was one of the best actresses I ever worked with, he said. There was none of that don't-mess-my-hair-or-makeup stuff going on. By the way, Rio Bravo was Howard Hawks and John Wayne's answer to High Noon, definitely one of my favorite flicks, but not a John Wayne flick. The weakness to that film, they thought, was that the town sheriff, Gary Cooper, went around begging all his pals to stand with him against a group of gunslingers, the leader of which had vowed in prison to exact revenge on the town sheriff, Played by Gary Cooper, who put him in there. In Rio Bravo, however, Wayne's character, John T. Chance, still enlists help to fight the man who has sworn revenge on him. That help coming in the form of the town drunk, played by none other than Dean Martin, the baby faced gunslinger and part time singer, Ricky Nelson, and stumpy, you guessed it, Walter Brennan. Some Rio Bravo bloopers. Sheriff John T. Chance wears a wedding ring even though he's not married. Maybe Pilar, knowing Wayne had a lot of long scenes with Angie Dickinson, asked Wayne to make sure he kept the ring on as a reminder. Also, during a poker playing scene, a player asks the dealer for a new deck, but we see the bartender reaching for the new deck before the question comes. Also, when Stumpy throws his first stick of dynamite, it lands only three feet away. Whoops! Also, at the end of the film when Angie Dickinson's character steps behind a divider to change her tights. She's standing in front of a window with the shade up. Whatever she doesn't want the sheriff to see is no doubt witnessed by everyone on the street below. Then came the movie The Horse Soldiers in 1959. Number 8 on my list of favorites. In this story, John Wayne plays Colonel John Marlowe, a Union soldier in the Civil War who has given orders to destroy a Confederate railroad depot. To do this, he must lead a small force of cavalry from Tennessee to Mississippi, a 500-mile trip, where they will cut the supply line to Vicksburg. As most Civil War experts know, the siege of Vicksburg was really the beginning of the end for the Confederate Army. Colonel Marlowe has a host of people problems to solve before he can accomplish that goal. Problems in the shape of a very stubborn surgeon, played by William Holden, who is determined to coddle one of the soldiers in Marlowe's command. A Southern Belle, played by Constance Towers, who has overheard their plans and needs to be taken prisoner. And Marlowe's second-in-command, a Colonel Secord, who makes no secret about using his military career to pad his entry into politics. To get through this mission, Wayne's character will have to utilize his wit, his negotiation skills, and his ability to command hard cases all before the real fighting starts. It's an interesting story, and very well filmed and acted. On a different note, a few days ago, I put a promo on Twitter to announce Part 1, and the response has been huge. About one response in every 20, though, is anti-John Wayne, and it's interesting to see how these people who are actively working to remove the Duke's name from the Orange County, California airport are working from the same playbook. They all use the same list, Wayne is a draft-dodger, Wayne is a wife-beater, Wayne is a homophobe, Wayne is a racist. As to the draft, Wayne could have enlisted and didn't, that's true. He was aged 34 when Pearl Harbor took place, and thereby exempted from service. And he did register with the draft, receiving a 3A family deferment. He wrote to Director John Ford, who had entered the Marines, asking his advice on his trying to enlist. But the answer that came back from Ford and others was that as a film star whose roles had a huge, positive impact on our fighting men, nothing he could have done on the front line could have had more impact than his characters. Wayne didn't go in, and he fought the criticism for the rest of his career, which didn't suffer for it. As to the wife-beating, he never hit any women, especially his wives. As far as the racist accusation goes, Two of three women he married were Latina. Chata was from Mexico, and Pilar, who bore him three children, was from Peru. Wayne was attracted by dark-skinned women. Does that sound like a racist? And the Rock Hudson story in Part 1 shows he wasn't a homophobe. Here's the story on the women who were closest to him. While John Wayne is mainly known for his commanding presence on screen, fans also know him for his interesting love life. Wayne married three times, first to Josephine Alicia Sainz, then to Esperanza Bauer, whom he called Chata, and lastly to Pilar Palet. When she first met Wayne, Sainz was just 15 or 16 years old. John Wayne was in college at the time and was still working to make a name for himself in Hollywood. The two eventually wed and had four children, as we already know, but they later divorced in 1945. In 1946, Wayne married Esperanza Bauer, Chata, a Mexican actress, who he met in Mexico City on vacation while he was still married to his first wife, Josephine Sainz. The marriage was bittersweet and turbulent. Allegedly, she was jealous not only of his passion for work, but of many of his female co-stars and even his beloved children. Our marriage was like shaking two volatile chemicals in a jar, Wayne once said. "'Chada suspected an affair between Wayne "'and his Angel and the Bad Man co-star, Gail Russell, "'which they both denied. "'When that film finished shooting, "'the cast and crew celebrated "'and Wayne returned home extremely late one night. "'Chada was waiting for him, drunk and enraged. "'Upon his arrival, she tried to shoot him "'as he crossed the threshold. "'Fortunately, she missed. "'A messy divorce ensued less than a decade later. "'As we said before, that was where the wife-beating charges came from, according to the Duke. She would flail at him with her fists, and he put his arms up to defend himself. The two had no children. Wayne said Chatta was a lush. All Wayne's friends and co-workers, who knew her, knew she was. Amid the proceedings that dragged on for two years, he accused her of having an affair with hotel heir Nicky Hilton. In 1954... Wayne got married for the third and final time to Pilar Pellet, another Latina actress. She reconnected with Wayne when she had flown from her home country of Peru to dub a film in English. She had first met him several years before when he was scouting for filming locations in Peru. The pair got married in Hawaii, and after welcoming three children with Wayne, Pilar decided to quit acting so that she could care for them. The two informally separated almost twenty years after their nuptials. But never legally got a divorce. After their 1973 separation, where Paulette moved out of the home they shared, he began a romantic relationship with his former secretary, Pat Stacy, who he was still seeing when he died from stomach cancer. If you search, you can find a rare 1983 interview on YouTube with Pat Stacy, and she'll fill you in on what kind of man John Wayne was. Pilar was still John Wayne's legal wife at the time of his death in 1979 and later contributed to various biographical projects about her late husband and his legacy of work. In 1962, the Duke bought a 130-foot former minesweeper for $110,000 and called it the Wild Goose. His close friend Claire Trevor would later say, His boat was one of the great loves of his life. It became his sanctuary from the madness of life. He would take off with his family to the San Juan Islands in the Pacific, or anywhere he felt like going, and he would have a great time just fishing or reading, spending time with the family. The wild goose had an oak-paneled lounge with a wood-burning fireplace, a master suite, three guest staterooms, a poker table, and a bar, along with a film projector and screen and state-of-the-art navigation equipment. It was manned by a crew of eight whose company the Duke always enjoyed." In 1964, Wayne was diagnosed with lung cancer, and on September 16th of that year, he was admitted to Good Samaritan Hospital, where they removed a tumor the size of a golf ball from one lung, while completely removing the other. Four months after that operation, and after announcing to the world that he had beat the Big C, he went to work on The Sons of Katie Elder. I re-watched that movie last night, and it had an interesting plot. Four brothers returned home after a long absence "'to find their father had been murdered "'and their mother dead of loneliness "'after having lost the ranch to a scheming, power-hungry rancher Had not seen her sons for years. "'There was a scene where Wayne had to dive into a river, "'and in truth it was freezing cold. "'He asked the director Hathaway "'if there was another way he could do it, "'but Hathaway insisted. "'Wayne played the scene like a pro, "'but he had to spend the rest of the day on his oxygen tank, "'a regular fixture now after his operation.' To the public, it was the same tough man they saw when Wayne played characters in films like In Harm's Way, El Dorado, Rio Lobo, and others. But he was wearing a toupee now and keeping an oxygen tank close. All the pain was being felt off-screen. For me, The Cowboys, made in 1972, was my favorite John Wayne film, hands down. There are a lot of reasons, but mostly because this story is a story of a group of boys who due to unforeseen circumstances, have to grow up fast. Each one, in his own way, has to overcome his own personal fears and shortcomings. As a boy, I always wanted to act in a Western. I got to know horses well, and took every chance I could find, including summer camp, to become a good horseman. In college, I found a job gently new horses, in the spring for a summer camp. As an adult, I went on a cattle drive in Utah, and I got a part in a TV episode of The FBI Files, which cast me as an FBI agent in Arizona, whose job it was to solve the hijacking of a Brinks-style security van and the murder of its guards. Although a hat wasn't called for, I donned my own Stetson and jeans and boots to play the Arizona FBI agent who entered the crime scene, and they never questioned it, so I finally got at least a part of my wish to play a cowboy answered. The show, filmed at Dominion Pictures in Virginia, played on Discovery Network for years, and it's probably still out there today. It wasn't a speaking part, so it was no big deal. But it got me in a lot of scenes, and sure checked an item on my bucket list. For those boys who all got the parts in this John Wayne film, The Cowboys, all I can say is, wow, what a get. The Cowboys began filming in April of 1971 on the San Cristobal Ranch near Santa Fe, New Mexico, with a budget of $6 million. The film starred John Wayne, Roscoe Lee Brown, and Bruce Dern, and featured Colleen Dewhurst and Slim Pickens. It was the feature film debut of Robert Carradine. Based on the 1971 novel of the same name by William Dale Jennings, the screenplay was written by Irving Ravitch, Harriet Frank Jr., and Jennings, and the film was directed by Mark Rydell. And here's the plot. When his ranch hands abandoned him to join a gold rush, Aging rancher Will Anderson, played by the Duke, is forced to find replacement drovers for his upcoming 400-mile cattle drive. He rides into deserted Bozeman, Montana, where his friend Anse Peterson suggests hiring local schoolboys. Anderson visits the school, but departs, skeptical that such immature boys could handle the job. The next morning, the boys show up at Anderson's ranch to volunteer for the drive. Anderson reluctantly tests their ability to stay on a bucking horse, and as they successively take turns, Cimarron, a boy slightly older than the others, rides up. He subdues the test horse, but then gets into a fight with Slim, the next oldest boy. With no other options, and somewhat impressed, Anderson hires all of the boys, though he sends Cimarron away after the older boy pulls a knife on Slim during another fight. "'Anderson locks all the boys' guns, which they brought, "'in a box that will be kept on the chuck wagon during the drive, "'and they practice roping, branding, and herding cattle and horses. "'While they prepare, a group of mysterious men, "'led by Asa Longhair Watts, played by Bruce Dern, "'shows up asking for work. "'But Anderson catches Watts in a lie about his past "'and refuses to hire them. "'The arrival of Jebediah Nightlinger, a black cook, played by Roscoe Lee Brown, completes Anderson's crew. On the trail, Anderson notices Cimarron following the herd, which slightly nettles him. When Slim slips off his horse while crossing a river and Cimarron appears and saves him, however, Anderson decides to let Cimarron join the drive. Slowly the boys become good cowhands, impressing both Anderson and Nightlinger. One day Dan, a boy who wears glasses, is chasing a stray horse when he stumbles upon Watts and his gang of cattle rustlers. Watts, who reveals he's been trailing the herd, releases Dan, but threatens to slit the boy's throat if he says anything to Anderson. Dan is reluctant to go on watch that night, but Anderson, who thinks the boy is just afraid of the dark, convinces him to do his duty. Dan drops his glasses off a cliff overlooking the cattle, and Charlie, another one of the boys, falls off his horse, "'and is trampled to death when he goes to get them. "'Soon after, the chuck wagon throws a wheel. "'While the others continue on, "'Nightlinger and a boy named Homer "'hang back to handle the repairs. "'Seeing this, "'Watts and his gang come out of hiding "'and begin to openly parallel the herd. "'Anderson sends another boy named Weedy "'back to tell Nightlinger to rejoin the herd "'as soon as possible, "'and then gathers the remaining boys together. "'So they will not be harmed,' He tells them to act like boys rather than the men that they're becoming when the rustlers approach that evening. Dan tells Anderson he knew Watts had been following them but was scared to tell, and Anderson comforts the boy. After dark, Watts and his gang surround Anderson and the boys in their camp. They deliver a battered weedy, and Watts forces Anderson to surrender his gun and begins to taunt Dan. Anderson finally intervenes when Watts crushes Dan's glasses and a brutal fistfight ensues between Anderson and Watts with Anderson coming out on top. He tells the boys to get ready to leave and starts to walk away ignoring Watts' calls to stop. I'm going to leave the summary there for you to discover the rest. The Cowboys received mixed reviews from the critics some of whom debated the film's implication that boys become men or can confirm their manhood through acts of violence. And here we get to the root of our story. Boys aged 13 and up who lived in those times often had no choice but to do a man's work and take on a man's role for the families. You can say that their childhoods were robbed, and there's a lot of truth in that. But I'm going to guess that if you could ask them, they would tell you that although they grew up hard, they wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world. Look at the lives of many boys today. Way too much time is spent with computer games or online. Very little time is spent outdoors. Most TV is either wasted time or harmful. I can't recommend that you let your young boys watch John Wayne movies. That has to be up to you. But there does come an age, usually around 13 or 14, when they are still maturing emotionally and physically when some well-chosen movies might be a good idea with a parent present. That's as far as I can go safely here. As you well know, how you parent is up to you. But I'm all for letting boys be boys and girls be girls, and to encourage such. And many girls like to do the same stuff that boys do. The old expression was tomboys. And that's great. But at some point they become young women, and it's a beautiful transition, sometimes a shocker for Dad. In this movie, Bruce Dern plays a mean, sadistic rustler trying to steal the herd. My criticism of that, I don't think they needed to go there. But the director Rydell did, and apparently it didn't hurt the film, which got better reviews than most of Wayne's recent films. Rex Reed wrote in the New York Daily News, All the forces that have made John Wayne a dominant personality as well as a major screen presence seem to combine in an unusual way here, providing him with the best role of his career. Old dusty Bridges can act. And I do need to tell you that the boys do resort to violence in the last 15 minutes of the film, so you might want to screen it first to see if it's appropriate. And some of the boys don't make it. The lessons inherent in the film are many. There will be people who commit mayhem for no logical reason, and they need to be stood up to and taken down. That this is a hard world where nothing comes easy or free for most people. As John Wayne once said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. And then there's the lesson, move toward your fears rather than turning your back on them. Do not run from problems. Recognize when justice and freedom is being threatened, and fight for it. Own up to your mistakes. Stop creating excuses. Do your best, and always strive to learn and do better. Never back down from a fight. Don't pick fights. But if you have to get in one, make sure you win it. And be loyal to your friends. One other quality that shines through in John Wayne's movies and it's an important one for boys, is gameness. Many consider gameness to be an innately masculine characteristic which is disappearing. A parent can't teach it, although they can show it. John Wayne films, almost every one of them, show it, especially in the case of the boys and the cowboys. They are game to show up for a job which many consider to be over their heads. They show gameness in hitting the trail and driving steers and in overcoming the many challenges they end up facing. Many people frown on a real, warrior-type masculinity today. But it is what's needed to keep our country free. Just ask the Navy SEALs and Special Forces operators. Just ask the cop on the street today. Ask a firefighter. All these people run toward trouble, not away from it. At the beginning of the movie, the cowboys, Rancher Anderson, and the cook are trying to carefully father the boys. It's a fascinating story in that regard. Maybe they can't teach it as parents, but they can surely encourage gameness. To them, gameness means courage to step into it. Maybe your first try at roping a calf, or branding a calf, or riding a Bronco, or jumping into a cold leg. They know that every time a boy takes on a new challenge and does well, he grows. If he fails... They encourage him to get back on the horse, re-enter that game, and accept the next challenge. Moving from challenge to challenge in a computer game teaches a boy nothing. In real life, it teaches him everything. Of course, when a wagon full of showgirls arrives just passing through, the two dads in this film send the wagon on their way quickly. As some of the older boys are beginning to show interest... Aware of his repetitive screen roles as a paternal figure, John Wayne said the movie was based on a formula that worked in Goodbye, Mr. Chips and The Sands of Iwo Jima. In all three films, an adult takes a group of youngsters and initiates them into manhood by instructing them the right skills and values. Wayne did not hesitate to appear in The Cowboys despite the fact that no actor in his right mind would try to match the antics of eleven kids on screen. But for him... It became the greatest experience of his life. Here is some great behind-the-scenes trivia from the Cowboys. Roscoe Lee Brown, who played the black cook, was urged by his friends not to work with the right-wing John Wayne. He ignored them, and the two actors refrained from discussing politics during the filming. Despite their political and social opinion differences, John Wayne and Roscoe Lee Brown did share a love of poetry. They sometimes quoted their favorite verses between takes. One of the most unforgettable boys was the pint-sized Hardy Fimps, who was played by Clay O'Brien. Clay O'Brien, now Clay O'Brien Cooper, went on to become an eight-time world champion team roper competing in the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association. He is still among the all-time top money winners in the PRCA. He was born in May of 1961, and he was eleven years old when he acted in the Cowboys. Roscoe Lee Brown later said, "'Some critics complain that I spoke too well to be believable. When a critic makes that remark, I think if I had said, "'Yassa, boss,' to John Wayne, then the critic would have taken a shine to me. Several of the boy's parents are played by their real-life parents.' There was and still is a lot of angst against the evil character that Bruce Dern played in that film. His daughter, Laura Dern, says that some of her friend's parents canceled playdates with her because of her father's role in The Cowboys. The movie also spawned a short-lived TV series, The Cowboys, in 1974. It lasted one season, with Robert Carradine and Young Martinez reprising their roles of Slim and Cimarron from the movie. Robert Carradine, slim, is the youngest son of John Carradine, who appeared with John Wayne in The Shootist in 1976 as an undertaker. He was also in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 1962, but they didn't appear together. Director Mark Rydell originally sought George C. Scott for the role of Will Anderson because he despised John Wayne's views on the Vietnam War. About half the boys in The Cowboys had experience on the junior rodeo circuit, and the rest were taught what they had to know during production. The tune that is played on guitar at the campfire is Guitar Concerto in D Major by Antonio Vivaldi. Future teen idol and singer Leif Garrett auditioned for the film The Cowboys, but was turned down because he was told he lacked the necessary rugged look. A few years later, he starred in two westerns with Lee Van Cleef and played the lead role in a television movie set during the American Civil War. The Cowboys film is included among American Film Institute's 2005 list of 250 movies nominated for AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores. Our last movie for this story, and my number six favorite, is The Shootist, which I do not recommend as a character builder, but it is a pretty good flick, and it brings in some of Hollywood's greatest talents, the names of whom you'll hear just ahead. The Shootist is a 1976 American Western film directed by Don Siegel and based on Glendon Swarthout's 1975 novel of the same name. It was John Wayne's final film role before his death in 1979. The supporting cast includes Lauren Bacall, Ron Howard, James Stewart, Richard Boone, Hugh O'Brien, Harry Morgan, John Carradine, Sherry North, Scatman Crothers, and Rick Lenz. In 1977, the Shooters received an Oscar nomination for Best Art Direction, a BAFTA Film Award nomination for Best Actress to Lauren Bacall, and a Golden Globe Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor, Ron Howard, as well as the National Board of Review Award as one of the top ten films of 1976. The Shooters received widespread critical acclaim, garnering an 83% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The opening scenes of The Shootist are a narrated flashback of the 30-plus killings by sheriff-turned-gunfighter John Bernard J.B. Books, using actual scenes from John Wayne's past films. Now an older man, J.B. Books arrives in Carson City, Nevada, in late January 1901. Almost immediately, just outside of town, he gets into a dangerous confrontation with an armed robber. Books disarms the robber quickly by wounding him. Then in Carson City, he has another confrontation with dairyman jay Cobb, but Cobb's assistant, Gillam Rogers, verbally diffuses the situation. Books then goes to Dr. E. W. Doc Hostetler, a Carson City physician who already knows Books from treating his gunshot wounds fifteen years before. Books came to seek out Dr. Hostetler for a second opinion concerning his failing health. Hostetler played by Jimmy Stewart, confirms that Books has terminal cancer and has only a few months to live. Books has prescribed laudanum to ease his pain, but learns that his condition will eventually become painful and unbearable. Hostetler remarks that if he had Books's courage, the death he has just described from cancer is not the one he would choose. Needing a place to live, Books finds lodgings at a quiet Carson City boarding house owned by Bond Rogers, Gillum's widowed mother. Wanting to be left alone, Books gives her a fake name. However, Gillum, Roger's son, finds Books's name at the local stable with stable owner Moses. Books' name is there on Books's horse's saddle and he quickly deduces identity. Gillum soon runs home and tells his mom, Bond, that Books is actually a renowned and famous gunfighter. Bond is very upset that Books has lied to her about who he is. "'and summons Marshal Walter Thibodeau. "'Books gets rid of Thibodeau "'by explaining his circumstances "'and assuring the Marshal "'he's likely going to be dead soon. "'Now more sympathetic to his plight, "'Bond asks Books to accompany her to church "'to obtain solace and comfort. "'But Books maintains he has no need of repentance, "'stating that he has never harmed or injured anyone "'who didn't deserve it. "'Word spreads that Books is in town, "'causing him trouble from those seeking to profit off his name.' or to kill him. A local journalist, Dan Dopkins, gets chased off when he asks Books for an interview. Books orders a headstone, but rejects the undertaker's offer of a free funeral, suspecting he would charge the public admission to view his remains. And we'll let you enjoy the rest of the story when you get a chance to see The Shootist. Richard Boone, who TV old-timers will remember as Paladin, and who played a bad guy in Big Jake, told Wayne biographer Michael Munn, who wrote John Wayne... "'The Man in the Myth. "'Duke never said as much, "'but I think he knew in his heart of hearts "'that this would be his last film. "'He always talked of future plans, "'but he knew. "'The film is peppered with actors like me "'from his old films. "'I don't know if he insisted upon us "'or it was a compromise with director Don Siegel. "'But there was Lauren Bacall, "'Blood River, "'John Carradine, "'Stagecoach, "'and the man who shot Liberty Valance, "'Harry Morgan, "'How the West was won,' Jimmy Stewart, the man who shot Liberty Valance, and me, the Alamo and Big Jake. I think Bill McKinney, Hugh O'Brien, and Ronnie Howard were the only ones who never worked with the Duke before. Again here, our old-timers will remember Hugh O'Brien as Wyatt Earp. After producer Mike Frankovich announced that he had purchased the movie rights to Glendon Swartout's novel The Shootist, Wayne expressed a strong desire to play the title role reportedly because of similarities to the character Jimmy Ringo in The Gunfighter, a role he had turned down 25 years previously. He was not initially considered due to the health and stamina issues he had experienced during the filming of his penultimate film, Rooster Cogburn. Paul Newman passed on the role, as did George C. Scott, Charles Bronson, Gene Hackman, and Clint Eastwood, before it was finally offered to Wayne. Although his compromised lung capacity made breathing and mobility difficult at Carson City's 4,600-foot altitude and production had to be shut down for a week while he recovered from influenza, Wayne completed the filming without further significant medical issues. The Shootist was Wayne's final cinematic role, concluding a 50-year career that began during the silent film era in 1926. Wayne was not, as sometimes reported, terminally ill when the film was made. A heavy cigarette smoker for most of his life, he had been diagnosed with lung cancer in 1964 and underwent surgical removal of his left lung and several ribs. He remained clinically cancer-free until early 79, when metastases were discovered in his stomach, intestines, and spine. And he died in June of that year. Nonetheless, following the release of The Shootist, Wayne appeared in a televised public service announcement for the American Cancer Society, that began with the scene in which Wayne's character is informed of his cancer. Wayne then added that he had enacted the same scene in real life 12 years earlier. Wayne, as it turns out, was responsible for many casting decisions. Several friends and past co-stars, including Bacall, Stewart, Boone, and Carradine, were cast at his request. James Stewart had not worked in films for a number of years, due in part to a severe hearing impairment but he accepted the role as a favor to Wayne. While filming the sequence in the doctor's office, both Stewart and Wayne repeatedly muffed their lines over a long series of takes, until director Don Siegel finally pleaded with them to try harder. If you want the scene done better, joked Wayne, you'd better get yourself a couple of better actors. Later, Wayne commented in private that Stewart knew his lines, but apparently could not hear his cues. Another casting stipulation was the horse owned and given away by Wayne's character, a favorite sorrel gilding named Dollar that Wayne had ridden in Big Jake, The Cowboys, True Grit, Rooster Cogburn, Chisholm, and The Train Robbers. And you'll recognize that horse easily because it has a long white blaze on its forehead and four white stockings. Beautiful horse. Wayne had negotiated exclusive movie rights to Dollar with the horse's owner, Dick Webb Movie Productions, and requested script changes enabling him to mention Dollar's name several times. Upon its theatrical release, The Shootist was a minor success, grossing $13,406,000 domestically. It was named one of the 10 best films of 1976 by the National Board of Review, along with Rocky, All the President's Men, and Network. Film critic Roger Hebert of the Chicago Sun-Times ranked The Shootist number 10 on his list of the 10 best films of 1976. The film was nominated for an Oscar, a Golden Globe, a BAFTA Film Award, and Writers Guild of America Award. Variety Magazine would say, The Shootest would stand as one of John Wayne's towering achievements. Don Siegel's terrific film is simply beautiful and beautifully simple. Wayne and Bacall are both outstanding. In his final days, John Wayne was extraordinarily giving of himself, while undergoing treatments for the stomach cancer that ultimately killed him. He was told by doctors that, considering the advanced stage of his disease, he might do better to simply go home and spend time with his loved ones. Instead, he volunteered to let the doctor try experimental drugs on him. His son Ethan later said he just turned himself over as sort of a human guinea pig. It wasn't fun, it wasn't comfortable, but that's what he wanted to do. And he told me that he wanted to support and encourage the doctors who were trying to find a cure for this terrible disease. He said, please help these people. Please use my name if you think it will help. The John Wayne Cancer Institute, the Duke's living legacy, is the end result of his dying wish. Ultimately, there are no cures for cancer at this time, and this was from a June 2009 interview. But the fight goes on in my father's name, says Patrick Wayne, who serves as the Institute's chairman. The fact that the whole family is behind it, I think would make him very, very happy. On Friday, June 11th, 1979, the doctors told the Duke's children that the end was very near. Aisha took hold of her father's emaciated hand. He stopped breathing. Patrick said, Goodbye, Dad. The time was 5.23 p.m. He was buried in an unmarked grave on a hilltop in Pacific View Memorial Park, overlooking the ocean. We all have our opinions about John Wayne and we all have our different favorite John Wayne films. I believe that the characters he played can provide inspiration for young men. His films featuring courageous, take-charge leaders gave countless young American soldiers inspiration, and the characters he played displayed the qualities of honesty, integrity, gameness, patriotism, decisiveness, leadership, toughness, and loyalty. Just to name a few. Here is my favorite eight list of John Wayne movies. We didn't mention them all here in these stories, but they're all inspiring in one way or another. Number eight is The Horse Soldiers, which was a Civil War movie featuring John Wayne as Colonel John Marlowe, and we discussed his mission earlier. Number seven, I have listed, is Rio Grande, in which Maureen O'Hara plays Wayne's estranged wife, who has traveled to this remote army post for the purpose of convincing him to let her son— who has joined the cavalry and is serving at his father's post, leave the army. There's a great scene where Ken Curtis and the regimental singers serenade she and Wayne's character Colonel York with the song I'll Take You Home, Kathleen. You can find that one on YouTube if you just search Ken Curtis and Rio Grande. Number six is The Shootist, Duke Wayne's celluloid goodbye. Number five is She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, another great cavalry flick, featuring Wayne as a retiring colonel at a remote cavalry post. Number four, for me, is The Quiet Man, which we discussed at length in part one. Number three, The High and the Mighty, discussed here. Number two, The Sands of Iwo Jima, a great, inspiring film. And number one, The Cowboys, which we covered here. Watch these eight films, and you won't be disappointed. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. We invite you to join us here, check out our archives, and share our shows with others, and also to join us at our other podcasts, a few of which are 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, and The Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Stories from the Old West, 1001 Radio Days, 1001 Radio Crime Solvers, and 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Thank you so much for joining us today. We release new episodes every Sunday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Until next week, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.